The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Uh, we are in uh, Genesis 32. Um, so if you have a Bible, Genesis 32, all the, the verses will be up on the screen. So uh, if you don't have a Bible, no big deal. We can continue to work through that together. Um, just so you guys are aware, one of the, uh, just to remind us, um, one of the ways that we do our sermons here is that we do Q&A after the sermon. So if you have any questions, um, that's the number to send questions. That's if you don't feel comfortable, like raising your hand. You're certainly welcome to do the old-fashioned, raise your hand, ask a question after the sermon. Um, that's totally cool. If you are intimidated by saying a, a question or whatever it is, uh, that goes straight to my phone, and I'll answer those after. I'll, I will do my best to engage with those. I don't have um, the perfect answer for all those things. Um, we can also consult Google together if that's a problem, um, and you don't like my answer. Um, so, um, so with that being said, uh, we're going to jump into Genesis 32. This is the story of how uh, Jacob wrestles with God. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us to get started, and then we're just going to kind of getting in, begin getting into our passage together. So let's pray. God, as we open this story and consider uh, this famous moment where a man who is unworthy of your grace uh, wrestles with you, I ask that you would help us as we begin to see in this moment that each of us must address with you personally and intimately, and that the purpose of your work in our lives is to mold us, even when we don't exactly like it. So I pray that you would be with us this morning who would experience your loving precision and care for us because of who you revealed yourself to be in Jesus. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm not sure if any of you intend to become a pastor or preacher, um, but one of the rules of preaching that you will be told is that you should never be doing self-counseling uh, from the pulpit. <laughs> um, Self-counseling is not exactly uh, the greatest thing to do in front of folks because then you're just basically talking to yourself the entire time. You're supposed to be caring for other people. Um, so what we're going to do this morning is entirely break that rule because um, I'm working through this passage in a way that I think affects my own personal life. Um, it's one of the unfortunate dynamics of preaching on a regular basis is that you eventually hit passages you're like, I don't really like what this has to say about my personal life, and yet here I find myself having to talk about it in front of other people, so here we are. We are engaging with a passage about discipleship and the way God shapes us and molds us uh, at times and in ways that we don't particularly like. Um, if you've been following along in our Genesis series, um, or if you've not, this is to kind of catch us up to where we are. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 talks about the way God made the world and designed the world and shaped us to live in that world with him and how it was infected and destroyed by death. And then as we pick up with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the story, we see the progressive ways in which death has infected each of our lives, and yet God's plan for our discipleship in the midst of all that is how his grace, mercy, and life overcomes the effects of death in our own discipleship with him. That's the broad scope of Genesis to this point. We find ourselves in the story with Jacob where he has, in effect, um, written out all the ways in which he can uh, you know, experienced the effects of death in his own life. He's swindled his family. He's lied to his, his in-laws, effectively. 
in-laws, effectively, and is now going back to his family to make uh, amends. And he is caught in a corner and can't find any way out except with God himself. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, is in effect, in the midst of our lives where we feel like we are caught and we can't do anything else, God is in the corner with us and shaping us to be like him. When we can't get out of it, when basically discipleship becomes hard and things are not easy, and God is the only person who can show up in the story to shape us and change us, that's what we're talking about here in this story. It's helpful to remember that while the sales pitch of Christianity, so to speak, is mercy and forgiveness, where we are forgiven for all of our sins, we are also offered a God on the other side of that mercy who continues to shape us and mold us to be like him. And that's often difficult. That's the story of Jacob right now. So, that being said, what I want to say is the main point of this passage, and then we're going to kind of work through maybe five dynamics of that. So we're going to keep a pretty good pace because five points is a, a big sermon, and we're going to kind of keep them. We're going to cut off some of them and say, like, well, you can talk about that later. We're going to expand some of them. So the main point of what we're looking at here in Genesis 32 is the heart of our spiritual life is being molded by God to depend on him. I, I don't imagine that's a revolutionary thought, but the heart of our spiritual life is being molded by God himself to depend on him. And you think about that in terms of um, not molded in an easy way, but molded like clay, you have to really force it to become what you want it to be shaped to be. So these five dynamics we're going to pick up and just kind of follow along the story. Uh, In no way do I mean this is prescriptive, but this is certainly five dynamics as I see them in the passage. So the first dynamic of our spiritual life and how we are folded, molded like God, molded by God to depend on him is the distress of our spiritual life. We're going to see here in verse 1 through 8 the distress of Jacob's life and ponder on it for a moment. So, verse 1, chapter 32. Jacob went on his way, and the angels, met, angels of God met him. Now, just behind this passage, we can be like, did they meet him like at a truck stop? Like, was it a fun meeting? Like, did they hang out at Dunkin' Donuts? The emphasis of this passage is they, they came to him. Like, his eyes were open to be able to see the spiritual world. And he saw this, this force of angels show up, and they were not exactly nice. Um, it would be like waking up in the morning and finding the FBI on your front yard <laughs> or something like that, or the CIA, whoever you get anxious about, um, or the men in black. Um, and when Jacob saw him, Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called that place uh, Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother. Right, Remember, this is Esau, his brother, whom he has deceived and lied to multiple times. In the land of Seir, the country of Edom, and instructed them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants and female servants. I have sent them to tell my lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Can you imagine, like, this is like your brother that you swindled, and not only have you now, first of all, in verses 1 to 2, seen the angels of God who are against you, so to speak, now your brother whom you've swindled out of his inheritance is coming to meet you. 
and he's got 400 of his posse coming to meet you. You can feel the tension of the passage beginning to rise. And then verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Yeah, no kidding. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. See here, ultimately what we're trying to unpack here as we move through this is the emotional experience of our characters. And seven, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Can you imagine here in Jacob's story what he is experiencing? Here he is, he is coming face to face, not only with the spiritual world, which he sees is uh, antagonistic towards him in a certain sense, but he's also coming face to face, and his brother whom he swindled is coming at him with 400 of his best men, so to speak. Jacob is experiencing this moment of absolute being overwhelmed. Anybody in here, I'm not raising, asking for people to raise their hands, but the experience of being overwhelmed often can be panic attacks, anxiety attacks, kind of like shutting down, basically kind of going inward and being like, I can do nothing to change the situation that I'm in. I don't know if you've ever had that experience or kind of know what that's like, where you just kind of like mentally check out, where you're like, I have no tools to handle this situation. That's what Jacob is experiencing right here. Pete Scazzario, in a book called The Emotionally, uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he calls this the wall. Um, we'll get to that quote in a second. He calls this the wall, and there's kind of development of our spiritual life. The wall of your spiritual life is basically where you cannot work your faith to get around the situation, right? Our faith works with kind of, you might call them minor ticket things. Like somebody says something offensive to you, you know, you have a conflict with your spouse, you have something where it's kind of like, okay, this is hard, it's not fun, but we can kind of work through this. You can find some negotiation. Big ticket items in our life that you might that are, that are the wall, like what Jacob's experienced, are things where you can do nothing to change the situation. Everything is outside of your control. It might be a divorce. It might be cancer. It might be a death in your family. It might be trauma that you've experienced. It is something that is so overwhelming that nothing that you can do can change what has happened. It's entirely out of your control, and all that you have to do is sit with it and continue to walk through it. That's what Pete Xerio calls the wall, and that's what I think Jacob is experiencing here. You can imagine his entire, he, he is basically in a corner. Everybody, he's swindled everybody in his life, and yet here he is following God to make basically reconciliation with his family. He's worried that they're going to kill him, and his worst fears appear to be coming true. This, the wall that we're talking about is this emotional state of basically being overwhelmed and, and, and not, able, not being able to do anything to change the situation that you're in. Now, we're going to see how the story develops for Jacob. But what I want to point out here is with this, that we're calling the wall, is that in Jacob's story, I find it fascinating that there, here in some of the earliest chapters in the Bible, it gives us, verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. An acknowledgement and it's okay statement about Jacob's emotional experience of the story. It's okay for Jacob to be overwhelmed, distressed, anxious, afraid, 
those are, in a certain sense, very real and reasonable response, a reasonable response to what he is experiencing as this wall in his spiritual life. It's okay for him to be distressed and afraid. I say this because I feel like one of the biggest problems that we experience when we experience these, the wall is if you've been in any, I don't know what your Christian experience is, but often we tend to displace and ignore our emotional experience of life. That's why this book, Pete Scario, is called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He comments, ignoring our emotions is turning our back on reality. Listening to our emotions ushers us into reality, and that reality is where we meet God. Emotions are the language of the soul. They are the cry that gives the heart a voice. See, emotions don't determine our reality. Like they, they do not say this is ultimately what's true, but they do give us a sense of saying there is something not right in me or there is something true about me that I need to find expression for. And if we ignore our emotions, we begin to ignore not only understanding ourselves, but hearing the voice of God himself. Right? This is not to say in a certain sense like emotions control everything. I think evangelicals tend to be very anxious about emotions because we don't want to be emotional or have emotions control our existence. And yet, emotions are given to us by God so that we can begin to see what's going on inside of me and how do I begin to understand how that relates to the world around me. Jacob's experience of being overwhelmed was to feel the emotions of being afraid and distressed. As you experience being overwhelmed, beginning to learn how to describe those emotions, I feel overwhelmed. I feel afraid of this or that reality. Is a part of being able to not only understand ourselves, is a part of being able to not only understand ourselves, but it is ultimately about beginning to find a place where we, we can experience the voice of God and his care for us. We're going to see that as Jacob's story goes on. I think one of the benefits of our small groups, frankly, is having a safe place where we can begin to say, this is my experience of my life with God right now. It is not fun. I don't think anything about Jacob's experience in this is fun. And yet, it is often, it is the, the very invitation of God to find God's presence and healing for Jacob in the story. And I think that's what our small groups offer for each other. That, that's why I'm, I'm not overly prescriptive about what needs to happen in our small groups. I'd like for us to study our passage. I'd like for us to talk about what's going on in our lives. And then as people experience distress, joys, acknowledging those and then exploring those as, where is God meeting you in that moment? That's, that's really what I think one of the payoffs or benefits of our small groups is. Okay, we're talking about dynamics. You guys cool? Tracking? You have any questions? Send me a text. We're going to pick up here verse 9 to 12, and we're just going to very briefly talk about this because I think there's some other things in the passage we want to get to. We've seen the distress of our spiritual life. We see in verse 9 to 12 the prayer of our spiritual life. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please, deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come, that he may come and attack me. 
the mothers and the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as a, as a sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is basically, in Jacob's prayer, kind of the framework for all, of, all uh, prayers through the rest of the Bible. They basically are shaped around this. God, you have said that you are this. You're faithful. You're good. You've made this promise. Here's my experience of life. It doesn't seem to add up to that promise. I don't deserve for you to answer my prayer. Right? Jacob has suddenly begun to realize how unworthy he is. And yet you've promised me. So would you please do something? It's basically that shape. God, you've said, I don't experience, I don't deserve, yet you've promised, so would you please pro provide? That's, you go and read through the Psalms, that's what the Psalms are, right? The Psalms often have this shape of, here's my reality, God. I don't understand how it matches up to who you are. I don't deserve for you to provide it for me, and yet you've, pro you've promised it, so would you please provide? That, that, that is the entire shape of what prayer looks like, for the most part, through the Psalms and through the rest of the Bible. Jacob is beginning to understand God, just how gracious a God you are, right? You are not a God who demands that I do very much or anything at all to earn and deserve your grace, and yet you've promised it. You've given it names and titles. Would you, would you please prove those true for me? So as we talk through the dynamics of addressing the difficulties in our spiritual life, the Bible provides us with the very language to say, God, I'm in distress, verse 7, and I'm afraid, I feel overwhelmed, whatever your emotional experience of discipleship is. Here's the language to begin to bring that problem to you. You've said this, I don't feel like it's happening, I don't deserve for it to happen, and yet you've promised it, so please provide. That's the shape of spiritual, of the prayer of our spiritual life. All right, we're going to move on. You guys are cool? All right, we're going to pick up here verse. We're going to skip down because there's a lot that happens in the story. But ultimately, Jacob sends everybody ahead of him to try to still trying to manage the situation. We're going to pick up here in verse 22 and see the work of our spiritual life. That same night, he arose, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children. Right, this is only counting the sons. Crossed the ford. Of the, of the Jabbok, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. So Jacob has now sent everything ahead of him, basically trying to provide as much of a compassion buffer as he can between him and his brother who's coming at him with 400 of his best men. And then verse 24, and Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the break of the day. See, Jacob, the story is written so that we get to verse 24 and we realize Jacob, it's nighttime. He sent everything ahead of him. He's done everything he can to manage this. And now he is utterly alone. And God comes. We discover that it's God later. Jacob doesn't actually understand who it is at the beginning. But he comes to wrestle him. He comes to wrestle with Jacob, and it happens all night. The text is written so that we basically are, are drawn into considering the spiritual lesson of what's going on here, right? The fact that Jacob wrestles with God himself, we'll see that later, but we can kind of read back into the passage. Why is God wrestling with Jacob, right? 
of all the kind of physical contests that could happen to kind of like prove that God can provide for Jacob, why is it that God chooses wrestling? Right? I know we have a bunch of runners in the, in the church. Why doesn't God race Jacob? You can be like, well, let's go to that tree down there. Who can touch that tree and come back faster? And then God does it faster and like, see, I, I, can, out, I can outpace you, right? Or why doesn't God throw stuff? See, I don't know if you guys have been watching the new She-Hulk, but there's a scene where like Hulk and She-Hulk throw stuff and she like throws a rock and it like, you know, goes to the next island over. And Bruce Banner throws a huge rock and it becomes a meteor and he throws it in outer space. Like, why doesn't God like outthrow Jacob? I think the reason God chooses wrestling, there's kind of two reasons. First, God is doing on the outside what Jacob has been doing the whole time. God, uh, through this whole story, Jacob has been wrestling against God, pushing back against God his entire life. He's been wrestling with God's promises. He's been wrestling with God's purposes. He's been trying to manipulate his own way to make life happen on his own terms against God this entire story. So basically, God is doing something on the outside, the physical interaction of what Jacob has been doing on the inside the whole time. But more importantly, I think the reality is God chooses wrestling with Jacob because it is an intimate, engaged, I'm facing off with you activity. God doesn't want to impress Jacob. Like, God's clearly restraining himself in this wrestling match. Like, no offense to Jacob, but God had to kind of like one-arm himself and kind of like wrestle him like with his pinky or whatever. I don't, you know, who knows? But the point is that God is holding self-restraint so that he is intimately engaging with Jacob because here he is. He cares about Jacob. He, he wants Jacob to follow him. He wants him to engage with him. He wants him to, to depend on him. But he chooses an intimate activity that, that causes Jacob to not, not mentally process with God, but to physically process with God. I think this is one of those things where we begin to see that the shape of spiritual life, the work of spiritual life, has to be, in a certain sense, physical and tangible. Right? Jacob could, I mean, God at this point has shown Jacob visions, right? He can do a dream thing, but God comes to Jacob and he physically engages with him. I think this is for us a call for us or a check for us to continue to consider we must do or the work of spiritual life must always be leaning towards physical practices, physical activities versus kind of intellectual exercises. Intellectual exercises are great, but you can only kind of sit under a tree and think about God for so long until it must be expressed in some physical activity, whether that's a journal or engaging with a physical book or engaging with physical people. I think that's a part of why the pandemic was so hard for us because we were forced into situations where we were like depending on our spiritual life through digital means that really could never provide the physical affirmation and discipleship and shaping of what in-person activities always have provided. Like, I love you guys, but sending a hug gift is not the same thing as actually getting a hug from somebody that you care about and that cares about you, right? I love you guys, but confessing my weakness and receiving affirmation from somebody that's, whose mouth is physically moving and uttering the words, who I see in their eyes, cares about me and, shape, and wants me to be shaped and molded by God, that doesn't, ha- I mean, 
screens are great. Like, I love the technology. It's great for ways in which we, we need support, whether it's, you know, the kids are crazy on Sunday morning and you can't get to church, or you're sick and you can't get to church, or whatever it is. Like, I'm not trying to bash on the, t the digital technology. I'm grateful for the tools. Frankly, Jesus used the new tools of his, you ever read in the stories where Jesus gets up on a ship and speaks? Like, that's using kind of like a revolutionary technology of the day to amplify his voice. So Jesus is not anti-technology, right? But I'm, I'm concerned about how much this little device, I know that this is a constant rant for me, mostly for my own self. It's great to see inspirational messages on Instagram. But I, I think that the, the heart of spiritual formation is working through the, the physical activities that shape our souls. So for example, some of you may not have grown up in Catholic context, but with the way Catholics pray, they do the shape of the cross, it is a physical reminder. I need to be reminded I am marked by a name that, whose name is Grace, right? You can over-ritualize that. That's fine. But I think that there is a, a, a physical significance to that. Or being on our knees and praying, right? Does it ultimately make our prayers better? No, but it might make our prayers more effective on shaping our souls. The physicalness of spiritual life has to take on it, 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 this, our spiritual life must take on a spiritual, a physical activity because it, it shapes who our souls are, right? I, I could say a lot about this. Am I saying too much? All right. If you guys got questions, you can certainly do it on the Q&A, but also I think that's a, what is that? It's a question for our small groups, like maybe to consider. What are the physical things that you have experienced in your, in your spiritual formation that have actually been helpful for you, right? What are the ways, and it doesn't have to be revolutionary, right? All the things that I'm talking about, prayer, reading your Bible, like a physical Bible versus a, a, a digital Bible, you know, taking a walk in God's creation to see the foliage right now. I mean, Peter and I were just talking about, like, I don't know what it is, the neon orange this year and the trees, amazing. But just taking a, a you know, enjoying the physicality of our spiritual life to shape our souls. What does that look like for you? Okay. I'm going to keep moving on. We can keep talking about that in our small groups or in the Q&A if you'd like. Verse 25 to 21, Jacob goes from the, I think we see in Jacob's experience, moving from the work of the spiritual life to the yearning of our spiritual life. So let me read verse 25 to 21. So, 24, Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he would not, did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. He said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man said to him, what is your name? And Jacob and he said, Jacob, then he said, this is the man that Jacob's wrestling, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But the, he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of that place Peniel, for saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So the sun rose up, as um, uh, so the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. So 
here we have kind of like the pivotal moment of Jacob's life where he has wrestled with God, wrestled with God, prevailed, because God obviously showed self-restraint, but yet God has wounded him in a way, touching his hip socket. I don't know what that, that injury is, but it's a permanent injury that then defines him for the rest of his life. He's blessed by God, so his name is changed from Jacob, the one who swindles or deceiver, to being one who prevails or wrestles with God. His identity has changed. His, he's been matured in a significant way as he's walked through what we called the wall. And now he moves on, limping for the rest of his life. Right? I, I don't exactly know what your hopes are for your discipleship plan with God, but God's discipleship plan with Jacob was permanent injury that de- defined him for the rest of his life. <laughs> right? There's a part of this where I can definitely like, feel like I can relate to Jacob because I've got this, these feet condition that makes me limp. Sometimes people be like, Jacob, are you limping? Like, yes, I have arthritis in both of my ankles. It hurts all the time. So I can relate to my namesake to walk. It's not the point of my passage right now, but see, the lesson has gone from the outside of Jacob wrestling to the inside so that God now has an access point to defining Jacob's spiritual life for the rest of his life. Uh, I want to read a quote um, from Augustine Juilliard. He he was a French uh, Cartesian monk God wounds our soul with a wound that will never heal, and it is through that wound that he finds his way to the very center of our being. Right here in the life of Jacob, we find this happening where God's great discipleship plan for Jacob is not that he overcomes everything in his life and therefore walks with, you know, Instagram perfect provision for the rest of his life of being a model disciple. The the reality is that Jacob experiences what major significant figures through the rest of the Bible experience. They're wounded and marked in a way that they can never overcome, but it makes them walk with a limp so that they depend on God himself. I I, I feel like sometimes the way people fall away from Christianity is that they were given a sales pitch where everything that you want will come true. Everything that you want in life will be good and without hindrance, without uh, confusion or frustration, and you're going to walk with Jesus for the rest of your life and the reality is that the Bible shapes us and offers us a discipleship plan that says sometimes in your discipleship plan, God will, God will hit you in the hip so you depend on him for the rest of your life in a way that is inconvenient and frustrating and you can never get around. And that's the way of Jesus. Right? Jesus does not come into our lives and offers us a discipleship plan that says everything that you hope for will come true. But what he does is just like Jacob, is he says, I will mark you in a way where everything that you yearn for in me, you'll get. Which is to say, the yearning that Jacob wants is ultimately, as he says, God, tell me your name, tell me your name, tell me your name. And God's like, I've been telling you all along. (laughs) He gets God's name, he gets who God is, and he's marked by that for the rest of his life. This is, I think the question of, do you feel like you've been wounded in your spiritual life in a way that you will never be able to get around? I don't know what that is for you. I could begin to kind of explore what that is for me. Sometimes it's, yeah, there's no reason for me to do that here, but that's a question for your, for your small group. Do you feel like you've been marked in your spiritual life in a way, what we call the wall, a trauma, a death, a massive disappointment, 
a health condition, something, maybe it's a, your experience of the spiritual life in the church. I don't know what it is, but there's often some way in which we feel like I've been marked and I didn't want this in my life. And yet it has marked me in a way that potentially is the hand of God to make me depend on him for the rest of my life. I don't know what that is. But that seems to be the shape of what going, what's going on in Jacob's maturity. He cannot get away from being molded by God. And yet, God's hand in molding is not, to use the illustration of the Hulk earlier, right? He's not smashing you left and right. It's with a surgeon's precision, right? In a certain intimate way that makes you depend on God. Right, you see this in Second Corinthians. I don't know if I've made a slide for this or not, but there we go. This is standard across the Bible. Paul says this. So to keep me from, right, so just to give you context, right, the apostle Paul went to heaven and saw what, he, what the world's really like and what heaven's really like face to face, right? Anybody here done that? Don't think so. I, I mean, maybe. That'd be great if you did. I'd love to hear about it. But Paul, in his experience of that, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I plead with the Lord about this. Here is Paul's wall, right? You're looking for like illustrations of what the wall looks like. Here's Paul's experience of that. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am... I, am count, I contend with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I'm content with those things. For when I am weak, I am strong. I don't know what your wall is, but at the heart of this dynamic of the spiritual life, Jacob's yearning for God's name. And God has already marked him by his name. When you're yearning for God to resolve whatever the wall is in your spiritual life, when God's molding you and it's hard, he has already shown you who he is. He is this gracious, merciful, compassionate God who's up in your business, right, the wrestling moment in this story, because he cares about you, not because he's trying to push you down or suppress your humanity or make you worse off, because he cares for you. Ultimately, the point is that we see God face to face. That we experience this being molded by God to depend on him because he's good and we want that. So let's end just by a little tag here, verse 32, the habit of our spiritual life. Verse 32, therefore to this day, from the author's perspective, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he, that is God, touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the sinew of the thigh. Now, here's the, the, the reality of just kind of thinking through the author and the Bible and how it's written. This is a command that's nowhere in the Bible, right? So this is somebody who's writing the passage, writing this passage, probably not Moses, probably after the time of Moses, coming in and saying, a, like a cultural commentary, the way God's people have applied this passage through the rest of their lives is that they don't he eat the hip socket part of the meat in whatever animal they're eating. 
Um, and that's not a Bible command, and yet it's a cultural dynamic of how they remember this story in their spiritual lives. Presumably, everybody in the, in the, in the history of God's people has not been touched in the hip. Everybody, anybody here be able to not, has anybody here not been touched in the hip, so to speak, in their spiritual life with God? Like, maybe not physically, but each of us has had that experience in one way or the other, I think, or will. And yet, there's a physical thing in which they do that is specific to Jacob's story and how they remember this moment that God will shape them and mold them and mark them to depend on him. This is, I think, just kind of speaks to the habits of our spiritual life. How do we habitually remember God shaping us and molding us to depend on him, whether it's our season of being in a wall or whether we're walking in the joy and gladness of the Lord? It's a habit to remember who God is and what he's like. That's basically what this is about, right? So that's why, for example, our, this, the structure of our, our Sunday morning services, I, I will tell you, I, I do not invent anything new. They are literally copy and paste from John Calvin's worship service from friggin' five year, 500 years ago. <laughs> like, nothing new here. I mean, we've modified it slightly just to be a little bit more kind of user-friendly. Um, I don't think John Calvin did Q&A in the middle of his services. It doesn't strike me as that type of, his type of jam. So we've modified it slightly. But we do this as a way of reminding ourselves God calls us into his presence. That's why some of the scripture is read at the beginning of our service. We sing about God's goodness. We remind ourselves and respond to God's moment among us by his word and responding in prayer. We do announcements to describe. Here's what God's doing in our life together. We hear from God's word. We respond to his presence by a meal with God in the Lord's Supper, right? That God regularly reminds us in a dramatic, I know it's small, that God sent his son to die in our place. His body was physically broken and his soul was actually poured out for us so that we then come here and receive fresh grace in God because of the resurrecting power of Jesus on a weekly, daily basis. And then we sing about how good God is to us, and we're sent out with a blessing. That's the shape of, our, of, our, of the habit. And now, are those things like lockstep, like written, is there like a worship service written down in the Bible? Not really, but there's habits that shape us and mold us so that we experience God's presence among us on a weekly, daily basis. So that we are reminded, as we are molded by God, what type of God are we walking with? So I don't know where you find yourself as we move into this next week, how you've been marked by God, but maybe that's not your season of life right now. What that will look like. I don't know what that will look like in your life. But we have in this moment together here, and as we move through this week after week, we're reminded when we are molded by God, as we are molded by God, we are molded by this God in particular to depend on him because he is for us, he's gracious, and he's good. Let's pray. God, as we've considered the story of Jacob and what it looks like to be molded by you, I think of the folks in our church, and as each of us are in different seasons or moments of being molded, Maybe some of us are in that experience of the wall, and some of us are in the experience of just getting to know you and enjoying your goodness to us. Wherever we are, God, you are at the heart of it. And so I pray that as we have worshipped you and continue to worship you this morning, that we would be reminded of how good you are to us.
It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.